0: Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N. McLanahan.com. give me that email address while you're there I'll give you a free ebook Forgotten Founders and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly you can support the show by going to mclanehanacademy.com which you've already heard about also click on that support tab at BrianMcLanahan.com. you can throw a few pennies my way buy a book plate for one of my books I've got a lot of books The Jeffersonian Tradition is my latest you need to get that also Southern Scribblings those books came out in the last couple of years but I also have Several other books, all of which are great. And, of course, if you want my autograph on them, get that book plate. Also, click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Lots of great ways to support the show. But the best way, of course, is to share it around on social media. Rate it where you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. All right. Let's talk about this week. This is going to be an interesting week. And if you don't follow what goes on at Chronicles or American Greatness... You know that uh, the last couple of months, uh, I've written some pieces for Chronicles that have come under attack by the Claremont people, most notably Michael Anton, who is a senior fellow at Claremont and also uh, one of the uh, main editors at American Greatness. And so Michael Anton, of course, served in the Trump administration and he wrote uh, a couple of important books in the last four years in the conservative quote-unquote movement. And so when I wrote an essay criticizing the 1776 commission report, I knew that it would get some flack from people uh, on that side of things, right? On that side of the conservative movement, whatever that is. And lo and behold, I did. Anton responded. I responded back to Anton recently in Chronicles. And then uh, just a few days ago, he wrote another response to me at American Greatness. Now, I haven't had time to respond to it. In fact, part of the problem is that Anton has been allowed free reign he's, because he's the editor there. He's, he's written nearly 10,000 words against me, and I've been able to produce only about 4,600, uh, and that's because of limitations. So you've got that issue. So that's part of the problem. My response has been limited. Uh, but really, and I'm, and I'm trying to craft a response to this, but I want to focus on this. Paul Gottfried did respond back to him, and I'm going to cover that essay this week. It'll be on uh, Wednesday of this week. I'll go through Paul Gottfried's essay in response to Anton, which I thought was good. But I thought that this actually opened an opportunity to discuss conservatism, to discuss what that means, where it comes from, and to have a conversation about that. You see, I have been very critical of the Claremont people. I've been very critical of the neoconservatives. And, of course, he doesn't like the fact that I call them neoconservatives because he says that's just red meat for, uh, for my audience. They're really not neoconservatives. You see, the, the Claremont people don't like to be lumped in with the neocons, but they all have, in many ways, the same hero, and that's Abraham Lincoln. If Abraham Lincoln is going to be your quote-unquote conservative hero, then you really don't have anything to conserve, and this has been going on for a very long time. Now, Anton likes to say, at the end of his his piece, he said, well, you know, Harry Jaffa, my teacher. This is the thing. All these people go, Harry Jaffa, Harry Jaffa. Harry Jaffa, my teacher. My teacher, Harry Jaffa. My teacher, Harry Jaffa. Harry Jaffa brought back around uh, at the end that the founders really were the most important thing. And it really wasn't Lincoln, but the founders. And so... Their reading of the founding is that you had this Enlightenment period, and that Enlightenment period produced the American War for Independence. In other words, it was a soft independence. When I say a soft independence, it was ideological. There was nothing concrete about it. It was more in line with ideology than anything else. And that ideology came down to that First line of the second paragraph of the Declaration. That established what the revolution was. And to them, it was a revolution. In fact, Anton says as much. And what you get out here, in this, this first piece I'm going to start with this week, and I'm going to set up what I'm going to do the rest of the week. What you get at is one very important thing. What these people don't want to happen. What, what they think should have happened. And this is all virtue signaling on their part. What they think is that what we had to do was have a revolution that foisted all these egalitarian principles on the rest of the world, and then it should have stopped right there. That you shouldn't have gone any further. And so what they've done is they make themselves feel better. Well, hey, Abraham Lincoln's our guy. We freed the slaves. We were in favor. They're old Republicans. We were in favor of early women's suffrage and uh, black suffrage, and all, we are in favor of all that stuff, so you can't call us a racist. And essentially, when you look at Anton's response to me, the last one, this is what he does. He decides that because I don't come out and promote Abraham Lincoln or Elizabeth Cady Stanton or Frederick Douglass, that somehow I'm saying that conservatives are racist and pro-slavery. In fact, that's his fear. His fear. And it's palpable. It's in the entire essay. It's palpable. He doesn't want conservatives to be labeled racist or pro-slavery or anything else. My response to that was, they're going to call us that anyways. And uh, there are things that happened in the past. We can't make up history to simply fit our narrative of where we want it to go. So you have to recognize that many people that we would call conservative today, from the 18th century, from the 19th century, held views on race and slavery that are not in line with ours today. But yet they still have some pretty important things to say about society and politics and government. And so we should look at those people and actually champion what they're saying about things that we agree with and and not the things we don't agree with. And let the left play their game of calling everybody a racist and a slave. Because that stuff is getting old. It's wearing thin. Americans are starting to see through it. They understand now, with critical race theory and all these things, they understand that what, this is, what is going on, this is a big game, and it's been going on for a very long time, as I'm going to point out in this first essay of the week. A very long time in the post-war period. So I'm going to cover an early essay, on t- uh, today on this show, and then tomorrow I'm going to do an essay by Clyde Wilson um, on the Constitution that was written in 1987, and then I'm going to cover Paul Gottfried's essay on Wednesday, and then I did a poll on social media on Twitter, so if you don't follow me on Twitter, that's usually where I post most of my stuff, but if you don't follow me there, go over there, but I did a poll uh, asking people, there was two choices what you wanted me to talk about on Thursday, so I'll do the one that you chose. For Thursday, I find it an interesting piece, to say the least, or the way that it's presented, okay, which I think is the important part. So let's get into this first piece of the week, and it's by Wilmore Kendall. Now, if you don't know who Wilmore Kendall is, he's one of the big names of the post-war conservatism, conservative movement, if there's an ism with it, but the conservative movement of the post-war period. And I find Wilmore Kendall to be uh, an important thinker. I don't agree with him on everything. And in fact, I don't agree with him on the conclusion of this piece in some ways. But I wanted to do this piece. It comes from 1962's Modern Age. In fact, the uh, winter edition, I believe, or the fall edition, I'm sorry, from 1962 Modern Age. And the title is What is Conservatism? This is a long piece. I'm going to go through it. There are a lot of important things he says in this, and he could be writing this today. That's the amazing thing about this. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed in sixty years. I mean, we're almost on. The, we're at. We're at the cusp here of this piece being sixty years old, and nothing has changed. Sixty years. We're still doing the exact same thing. Conservatives are still doing the exact same thing, and uh, the left now over sixty years has has been emboldened, and they've accomplished some of the things that Kendall says they couldn't accomplish in 1962. Maybe it's because of the reasons that he gives here in this piece in 1962 that the left has been able to do it. I don't know. I think it's because of one thing that he. there's a line in here that became the important part of this. Okay, so, modern age, 1962. What is conservatism? What, I ask, is conservatism. Or more concretely, since I write with an eye to present-day politics in the United States... What to begin with is contemporary American conservatism? The question, make no mistake about it, is up. People, American undergraduates especially, are wondering about it, as wonder they well may. For since contemporary political journalism finds the terms conservative and liberal somehow indispensable, people encounter them now 20 times a day. Now, I would say today it's conservative And progressive, they've dropped that term. Liberal, that came out of the 1990s when the left figured out liberal was so so excoriated; it had been so abused. Well, they just call themselves progressives now, and progressive sounds great. Progressive sounds nice. It's all the same thing. They've just repackaged what they are, and these terms really don't mean anything. And in fact, Kendall says that as much says as much in this piece. The coalition of Republicans and Democrats has struck down most of Mr. Kennedy's legislative program in the last session and seems likely to do, do it again in the current session, is a conservative coalition. Senator Byrd and Senator Goldwater are conservatives, just as Senator Humphrey and Senator Douglas are liberals. National Review is a conservative magazine. The New Republic, a liberal magazine. Moreover, the journalists who employ the terms in question now do so unapologetically, and with what seems an easy confidence that their readers will understand what they mean by them. That meaning, however, is certainly not to be found in any dictionary or encyclopedia. Nor, we may safely guess, could the writers who spend the terms as common coinage or the readers who accept them come up with definitions that they themselves would consider even marginally satisfactory. Nor can anyone with an ear for these things long remain unaware that there are difficulties about the terms and that people generally who tend to be very wise about the language they speak Since those difficulties, especially what I believe to be the major difficulty, namely, yes, Senator Goldwater is a conservative. And Senator Humphrey, who does seem to disagree with Senator Goldwater pretty much all the time, is a liberal, right? So what he's trying to do in this first part is define these terms. This becomes very difficult to do. That is easy, presumptively without difficulties, if only because these are the terms that these distinguished statesmen apply to themselves. And yes, National Review is conservative and New Republic liberal. That is also easy. Again, because each of them applies the relevant term to itself, but also because, for that seems to help, they so identify each other. But what, most people still have to ask, am I? What is the New York Times, which National Review excoriates as the fons? original of the liberal propaganda line, and which Professor Rossiter, apparently without a bat of an eye, Lash describes as a great conservative newspaper. So here we have two people saying the New York Times is liberal, the New York Times is conservative. What is Senator Thomas Dodd, who is said to owe his seat in the Senate to the laborer, i.e. liberal vote in Connecticut, and yet when he speaks on foreign policy receives hero treatment in the editorial columns of of National Review? What is the average newspaper reader who can only say to himself that he seems to agree with the conservatives about some things and with the liberals about others? Now all this adds up to a major difficulty, as I see it, for the following reason. Current usage of the terms conservative and liberal clearly implies A. That there is a line on each, on one side of which we may fairly expect to find conservatives who are consistently conservative standing over against on the other side liberals who are consistently liberal and therefore B. That the line exists and Falls where it does fall for good reason is, in consequence, an intelligible line. Makes sense as a line. Makes sense unless that line makes sense. Yet, one runs across no one who seems able to say where the line is and why and how it does make sense. So I repeat, people are wondering as wonder they will may, and paradoxically, wonder the more, not the less, because they feel fairly certain they can say and say with assurance which side of the line things that some things belong on. And my purpose in the present article can be best stated in just that context. I'm going to try to say where in contemporary America that line is, and why and how it makes sense, as I confidently believe it does, and believe it does because the people who are being called conservatives do have something in common that can be put into words, as also do the people who are being called liberals. The present writer is not, of course, the first to notice the current usage of the terms conservative and liberal Pre- presupposes a line, and so poses the question, where exactly is it? Now, let me let me back up for a second. So he's going to define conservative and liberal in this piece. He's going to get into it. And he's going to go through a philosophical exercise here at the beginning to try to massage this out a little bit. At the end, he comes up with some pretty concrete things. Now, there's a part in the middle of this essay that I fervently want to explain because he brings up policy issues and how the right has always won. But there's one important point that he makes 60 years later. He he couldn't even see it. What was it? What was going to happen in 60 years because of one thing that he says is going to happen because the right always wins? And how is that going to change politics? He says, one could indeed assemble now quite an anthology of recent comments whose authors take off from just these two points, an attempt in one way or another to dispel the ancient mystery, the attendant mystery. So he's going to say, look, here's what people have said about liberal and conservative. I have before me, for example, one from Gettysburg's most renowned gentleman farmer, the burden of which is that, yes, current usage does presuppose a line, but that line is in fact non-existent, and we should therefore abandon the usage. We should discard such shopworn terms as liberal and conservative. I have never yet found anyone who could convincingly explain his own definition of these political classifications. Now, that was a quote, a direct quote from President Eisenhower. He doesn't think we should use these terms anymore. They don't apply. I have another from Mr. Frank Meyer, the burden of which is that, yes, the usage presupposes a line, that such a line does in fact exist, and that the line is religious in character. Quote, The Christian understanding of the nature and and destiny of man, he writes, is always and everywhere what conservatives strives to conserve. And still another, with that same burden from a colleague of Mr. Myers, quote, the conservative believes ours is a God-centered universe, that man's purpose is to shape his life in the patterns of order proceeding from the divine center of life. So that's one definition of conservative. I have several from Professor Ludwig von Mises, for instance, or Adepts, of his like, Mr. Murray Rothbard or Miss Ayn Rand, the burden of which is, yes, there is a line, and it divides the sheep from the goats, the virtuous from the wicked, in economics or in Miss Rand's remarkable variant of the position in morals. On the one hand, those who put their faith in the free market and free enterprise and individualism on the other, those who put their faith in interventionism, in welfareism, in collectivism, in statism. Or as Miss Rand put it on television a few weeks ago, on the one hand, those who believe in competition and self-reliance, and each for himself, and the devil take the hindmost. On the other, those who believe in the slave morality of altruism and rewarding the weak and the shiftless at the expense of the strong and industrious. Or, as any of this school might be found stating it, on the one hand, those who believe in freedom, on the other, those who merely pretend to, that is, play lip service to freedom, but for the purposes of unfreedom of our enemy, the state. So that's one thing. That's a libertarian position, right? And all these things are trying to be reconciled. And so what Kendall's going to try to do at the end is put all of this together. All these people could fight the same fight under one thing. And this goes back to the battle I'm having with Anton. This is what he's trying to do. Hey, look, we've got all these things in common. We just have to fight the fight. But the problem is... They're fighting the fight on wrong terms, and that's what I'm saying in the piece. You can't fight the fight on the left's ground. You're going to lose. That's the whole point I was trying to make. Twice in Chronicles, in which I don't think Anton gets. He doesn't get it. You're fighting the fight on their ground, on their field, on their terms, and you know what's going to happen. They're the Super Bowl champs. You're going to lose. I've had another from those, Professor Clinton Rossiter, for instance, in one of his many moods, who takes a position. Yes, there is a line, but it is, let's face it, faint and zigzaggy. The conservative is, to a large extent, a liberal. The liberal, to a large extent, a conservative. And he goes in to explain what this means. I don't want to get into that, but it comes down to pessimism and optimism. So, because of time, I don't want to read every word here. I've had another from those. Again, Professor Rossiter, for for instance, but in another of as many moods who take this position. Yes, there is a line, and it separates those who believe in keeping things as they are, and the old ways, and the wisdom of the fathers, on the one hand, and those who want to change things, to pick and choose among the old ways to subordinate the wisdom of the fathers to the wisdom of the present generation. I have a great many from, for example, speakers at the 1962 rally of the Young Americans for Freedom, who at least seem to take the position Yes, there is a line, and it separates the tough and genuine anti-communists from the supporters of post-war American foreign policy. Those who want to liberate the world from communism by utterly destroying communism from those who want to contain communism or coexist with it. Those who are willing to risk nuclear war, fair rather than permit further advance by the world communist empire from those who are determined that no such risk shall be incurred. I have a great many, too, from spokesmen of these millions of Americans who take the position... There must be a line, and it must be the line that divides Republicans and Democrats. We're going to find it at all cost. Let the heavens fall. Now, that, that's, that's interesting because he says that's the vast majority of Americans. This is 1962, and I think this is what we're doing right now. Most Americans just want to find what's the difference between Republicans and Democrats. I'm a Republican or a Democrat. They don't care about everything else. So if the Democrats are for it, I'm against it if I'm a conservative. If the Republicans are for it, I'm against it if I'm a liberal. Or a progressive. But is that necessarily the right, right way to look at it? This is bigger. And Kendall will say at the end, he believes we're in 1962, we're going through a revolution. If then people are wondering, they have good reason to wonder, since even those supposedly in the know about such matters, I have included in my rundown of the various positions of an ex-president, the leading academic authority on conservatism, and several persons whom the Times have described not inaccurately as outstanding conservative spokesmen, come up with mutually exclusive specifications of the supposed line. Not only cannot tell all of them by be right, not only cannot all of them be right, excuse me, not no two of them can be right. And worse still, if we leave aside the Republican Democratic specification, which we be fairly dismiss as silly and fix attention on the other specifications, we feel, well, we feel that each of them, though perhaps partially right, or right as far as it goes, leaves a good deal unexplained. So he says this Republican-Democrat dichotomy is silly, but that's what Americans want. This is what they wanted in the 1990s. This is what they want. This is what they expect. Take, for example, the notion that the conservative is the man who believes in a God-centered universe. We get it from a writer who is, by general consent, a leading spokesman of contemporary American conservatism. Yet we know, as he must know, too, that at least some leading spokesmen of contemporary American conservatism happen to be non-believers. And that many anti-conservatives, that is, liberals, are deeply convinced Christians. And we wish we had explained how on his showing that can be. Or take the notion that conservatism is one and the same thing is with tough anti-communism. What then do we do with Professor Sidney Hook? Among the toughest, surely, of tough anti-communists, but surely also a leading American liberal. So he's saying, look, what about these things? So he's saying, look, let's get this all this stuff out in the open and then try to flush this out. He says, my thesis then is we are looking for it's a battle line and that the line stretches from all the way at the bottom of the chart of American politics to all the way at the top, passing through pretty much every issue that enters into our politics at all. My further thesis is that the battle line is a battle line and a war actually in progress between liberal troops on the left of the line and conservative troops on the right of the line. My further thesis, based on what I have called intelligence data with historical depth, is that the war began as a war of aggression, launched from positions that for good reason are not visible on the chart, on the part of the liberals, or more accurately, on the part of little unrelated bands of liberals, which did not, to begin with, have a name, and certainly not that name, but began at some moment to make inroads into a territory to which the people we now see on the right of the line had held undisputed title for a century or more. So he's saying, look, there's a battle line, and who began the war? The left. The right didn't begin the war. The left began the war. And it was not a concerted effort, but they started punching into it. And so conservatives became reactionary. They had to react to this, and this is what they did. My further thesis is that the attacking forces, after driving a big salient into the victims' territory in the 1860s and 70s, Emancipation of the slaves in the name of equality, the post the Civil War equality amendments to the Constitution rolled pretty much to a stop at a certain moment, whether because they ran out of steam or because they ran out of supplies or because they ran into stubborn resistance. It is not easy to say. But notice that he says that in the 1860s and 70s, it was the left that was Abraham Lincoln. Notice he says this. The left was Abraham Lincoln. The left was Thad Stevens. The left was Elizabeth Cady Stanton. The left was Frederick Douglass. That was the left. That wasn't the right. It was the left. Now, Anton would say, oh my gosh, you're saying that you're pro-slavery. Conservatives are pro-slavery. No, I'm not saying that. Not now. Could I say that conservatives then were generally pro-slavery? Many of them were, yes. Could I also say at that time that conservatives were not pro-equality? Absolutely. Does that mean that we are not pro uh, interested in uh, or we're still interested in segregation or we're still interested in these things. No, we're not. Okay. For various reasons, but that would be something that Anton would, Oh my gosh, he, he would flip out about this. I mean, he, he, the left is going to call us racists and slave owners. but this is the point. They're going to call us that anyways. Even if we adopted wholesale Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Frederick Douglass, and William Lloyd Garrison as the heroes of American conservatism. They would still call those on the right that. Because, you see, we're playing on their game by their rules and their field. All of this is their rules. We have to make our own rules. All we can say is that there were subsequent offensives by different and unrelated bands of aggressors who, until a fairly recent date, did not think of themselves as an army, properly speaking, and certainly did not think of themselves as engaged in a war, properly speaking. Indeed, that kind of thinking, even on the American left, is no older than the second decade of the century. And that while the attacks did continue and did drive new salience at various points from bottom to top of the chart, yet even the brightest and most knowledgeable military observers did not think of the attackers as even potentially an army, or that their of their small conquests is other than, shall we say, land grabs, analogous to taking land from the Indians or for homesteading purposes. Thus not analogous at all to... For so the liberals now think of themselves, a wave of the future, powered by something called high principle, bringing the small bands together into a disciplined army, an army con- conscious of itself, as staging a general advance along an extensive front with a common service of supply and a common general staff has been even on the left, a matter of say the last ten to twenty-five or thirty years. So he's saying this was not always a war, but the left has made it so in the last by 1962. So saying about the 1930s is when you started to see it. 1920s, 1930s, that's when you really started to see it in America. And then he says this about the right. He says, as for the right, their history roughly parallels that of the attackers, though always with a very considerable time lag. Many of them, it seems, actually supported that earliest aggression, government-enforced emancipation of the slaves, back in the 1860s. So see, many conservatives actually supported that. So there's a time lag. So are they really that conservative? He's asking at this point. Many others appear to have been indifferent or what we fashionably call apathetic. Only a handful, the Southerners, put up a genuine resistance. And they, as far as that original salient was concerned, were easily, not to say, ignominiously overcome. For many decades, it seems safe to say the men on the right could not get it through their heads that any major attack was shaping up. Each enemy thrust from off the chart met up, to be sure, with stubborn resistance, so that many were completely repelled, and even the most successful, e.g., women's suffrage, had to inch its way to its most advanced position. But the resistors were, so to speak, irregular, self recruited, self armed, and far, far too busy resisting in their respective localities to be concerning themselves with events elsewhere on the chart. So he's saying, look, this is a problem. We've never had a unified resistance. The left coalesced. They got an army together, and they started pounding the right, and the right didn't know what to do. This is he's saying is a problem with conservatives. Some some of the same thing that Michael Anton is actually pointing out. He's saying, why am I attacking him over this issue? We we see the same, and Gottfried is going to say this, and I'll get to this on Wednesday. We, we We see eye to eye on many things, and look, I agree with that. There are many things that we do see eye to eye with. And so uh, the fact is, why now? Why launch the attack now? Well, because you cannot play the game on the less field with the less rules and expect to win. That's my whole point. It's not that we don't see eye to eye, but if you're basing it on something that's not really conservative, as Kendall points out, then you're not going to win. Because at the end of the day, if your whole point is that the proposition, the proposition nation, the proposition of the United States is that all men are created equal, well, then you've actually conceded the entire field to the left. There's no winning that. You can't win. It's over. You've already given up. Might as well just become a leftist and just accept the inevitable inertia of the movement. Now, it doesn't mean, as Gottfried's going to point out, what does this really mean and how do we do this? And i pointed that out in my essays. What does this really mean? How did the American founders define it? And what did they were they really committed to this very leftist interpretation of that term, which many of these... Conservatives say, well, I'm not committed to that. Or was it something else? And how committed were they to this? And is this something that we should even be committed to? Many of the founding generation, within a decade after the American War for Independence was over, were recoiling at this. No, 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 no. This is bad news. We said the wrong things. Not because of race. They were looking at the French Revolution. On the right, therefore, there as yet no war aims. There is merely resistance. Against what? Against a full-scale revolution, which most writers continue to mistake for a series of local rebellions. Or to repeat my earlier phrase, local land grabs. Continue to mistake it for that, although the enemy now makes no secret of the revolutionary and integrated character of his enterprise and clearly does have a general staff that concerns itself with all the engagements being fought and does show profound awareness of what the war, when it is over, will have decided. That is, what exactly the war is about. So the right isn't, they don't have an army yet. They're not unified. What is it about? About the question, is the destiny of America the liberal revolution or is the destiny envisaged for it by the founders of our republic? Just that. So what is the revolution? Is the destiny of America a liberal revolution? And is that the the vision of the founders? That's the war. You see, that's the war. What what the 1619 Project and the 1776 Project are doing, they both agree on the same terms, that the founders were revolutionary, that the founders had revolutionary ideas, that the founders were children of the Enlightenment. The 1776 people would say, yeah, this is what we agree, and we should have gotten to a point and stopped. Those on the left will say, why do you get to decide when we stop? This is something Gottfried points out. So he gets into a whole bunch of other things. Um, and I want to I get to this part because I don't want this, this episode to be you know an hour and a half long. He says, once the right won some battles, and they did. They won, By 1962, they were winning battles. For example, he says they were winning battles against immigration. Now, we know that's all changed. We know the right hasn't won anything on immigration in the last 40 years. It just hasn't. And that's due in large part to a conservative adoption of the principles of the founding that they think are the same as the left. This is exactly what's happened. But he points out, once the right won in 1962, once they won these battles against immigration, then after a while the smoke clears and you see that the professors have gone home to resume the indoctrination of their students. Now, why is that important? This is 1962. Because those students who were 20 years old in 1962... Now, of course, they're 80. But this went on for years. This went on for years. So now 1972, they're still doing the same thing. Those people are now, those people are now 70. In 1982, those people are now sixty. In nineteen ninety-two, those people are close to fifty. And so what you've had is decades of indoctrination. This is why we're getting critical race theory. This is why we're seeing and he points out that When I get to some of this essay, think about now. It's the same exact stuff, but because of the professors going back to their colleges and universities, and then they teach teachers who teach these things, in the secondary schools, and even the primary schools. What you get is an army of minds of mush who have been taught this stuff since they're five years old, and they believe it. It becomes a religion. It's all it can be. And so if that's the case... We're going to always lose, so we have to offer something that's that's different from this. And the left knows if they just call you a racist or pro slavery or something that well, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that at all. Well, nobody does, right? Nobody wants to be called that in 2021 or 2022. You know, nobody wants to be called that. So they know if they just use that, well, they're going to win. So they've come up with a way to do it: just call them that, and people will back off. This is what Michael Anton is being is is worried about. Well. I mean, they're going to call us racist. I wonder if any leftist would not call Michael Anton a racist because he says things in the essay like uh, you know, the attack on white people or um, the attack on Western civilization. They're going to call you racist anyways because you used that term. So uh, to say that the founders are racist, what's what's the big deal? Uh, it's not to say that you're a racist. This is what these people are. We can't do anything about that. There's nothing there. I mean, that's what they are. But yet, could there be things we could learn from them? Of course. Of course. Same thing with antebellum Southerners, who Kendall points out, hey, these are the real people opposing this stuff. I mean, they're wit- they're knowing. They know exactly what's going to happen. They're crying out, if you do this, we're doomed. Conservatives are doomed in America. And yet, they were pushed aside. Because, I mean, right, look, slavery was an institution that needed to go. For a variety of reasons. And then after that, though, then we get into this, you know, well, where do these people fit and everything? He brings up Senator Byrd. By the way, Senator Byrd uh, just had his statue torn down in Virginia, taken down, uh, because he was the uh, author of what was called uh, massive resistance through legal means to resist segre- uh, the integration of schools to enforce segregation. Um, so this is why he's persona non grata now but um, certainly a bird was in many other ways i mean he was people would look at him if you're on a conservative and say my gosh this guy was saying a lot of right things so he gets into a number of issues that are important here he says but but wait a second here the reader may protest revolution seems a pretty strong word to apply to the liberal programs you mention you're playing games with a word that does not lend itself to games and This, regardless of whether you're using it with, say, the Industrial Revolution as your analysis or with the French Revolution as your analogy. The changes we lumped together under the heading Industrial Revolution all had something in common, namely the shift to a new principle for organizing production. But the liberal attacks you speak of do not involve a common principle. While, if your analogy is the French Revolution, the obvious reply is that there is no question here of an attempt to overthrow an established order or regime or form of government. The attacks you speak of are merely attempts, tardy attempts for the most part, to remove irrationalities from a social order that we all want to maintain and improve. They are exactly the kind of thing our Constitution and its preamble clearly calls for. Proposals look into the ends of justice, that is, liberty and equality, and to the general welfare. Your so-called resistors, therefore, do not deserve the respectable name of conservatives. They are rather obstructionists, defenders of sordid vested interests that ought to have no defenders. Most of us prefer to think of conservatives as, at the very least, men of principle, and your resistors are not that at all. So the reader may may conclude, come of it. It is, I concede, a good, sharp protest that, for the rest, I have clearly invented one, therefore, that calls for a good, sharp answer, which is the kind of answer I'm going to make as I read the rest of my riddle. So he's saying, look, as you're thinking about this, I mean, if this is the case, and these people that are on the left, these are just good Americans. They're just trying, and this is what the 1619 Project says. They're just good Americans trying to make way of things. And these people really aren't conservatives. They're opposed to this. They're obstructionists. And see, this is what the 1776 project tries to put together. They tried, we won't be the obstructionists. We believe in some of these things. Let's put them together. We just don't want it to go so far. They're afraid. They're afraid. My, my analogy in using the word revolution is let us be clear at once both the French Revolution and the Industrial Revolution. I claim there is both a common principle involved in the liberal attacks, and partly for that reason and partly for another, an, an intention hardly concealed anymore, to overthrow the established and traditional social and political order. I am therefore using the word revolution in the full sweep of its meaning as witness the following considerations. Now, I love this part because he gets into some things here that are happening in 1962 and see where we are in 2021. Nearly 60 years later, These are the exact same things we're still talking about. So you could say that Kendall was right. We've resisted all this stuff for 60 years. It's resisted. But are we going to be able to keep resisting it is the question. And this is where you get into politics. The left knows they may not be able to win on these things. So what they do, they bring in outside forces to do it. They, They support massive immigration, for example. So these people become dedicated Democrats. They don't really have any sense of the traditions of America and what it is. So they'll just vote for stuff that they don't really care about. And what I mean by that is they'll get rid of things they don't really care about. First, nothing can be more certain that the founders of our republic bequeathed to us a form of government that was purely representative, a form of government in which there was no room, in which, moreover, there is to this day no room for policy decisions by the electorate, that is, for electoral mandates emanating from popular majorities. Or rather, there is one thing more certain, namely that the liberals intend to overthrow the traditional form of government have a carefully worked-out program for overthrowing it, and labor diligently, year in and year out, to seize the strategic points they must seize in order to accomplish this overthrow. Indeed, the only reason that is not more generally understood is that the liberal proposals in this area are so seldom brought together, and looked at as an integrated in design. Put an end the liberals insist to rural overrepresentation in the lower house of Congress, and in the state legislatures, bringing them in line with the principle one man. One equal vote. So he's saying, look, the, the problem is there's rural overrepresentation in America. What do we need to do? We need to get rid of that. And how are they going to do it? One man, one vote. This is the stuff we're seeing. This is the this is HR1. This is everything we're seeing in America right now. He says, this is the French political philosophy, not American. America was not interested in one man, one vote. The entire system is structurally designed not to do that. He's right. Must call finally for an abolition, even of the U.S. Senate, as a check on majorities and would, in any case, make the House the creature of numerical majorities at the polls. Who's talking about the abolition of the Senate? The left. Ian Milheiser says it just about every single day on social media. And he is a big-time leftist poll, far-left poll, who writes all kinds of legal stuff. But he wants to get rid of the Senate. 1962, they're trying to do it. Why? In the name of democracy. What's going on right now? The Senate's the problem. we got to do something with the Senate. Gotta... Wait, what does they want? They want to get rid of the filibuster. Ooh, Wilmore Kendall talks about that. Abolish the Electoral College. Where have we heard that before? The liberals insist further, and so make the president also the direct agent of the popular majority. Reform the party system that liberals, the liberals insist still further, so that the each of our p- parties shall be pragmatic, ideological, like those of the real democracies in Europe and so that the two parties together shall submit and at election time a genuine choice to the electorate. Abolish the filibuster! So runs the next point in the program, because it frustrates, serves no other function, except to frustrate the will of the majority. Rescind the seniority principle in congressional committees. The program continues. It also obstructs the will of the majority. Now give the liberal attackers their way on all these points, and I insist the form of government expli- explicated in the Federalist Papers will be no more. In at least this area, then the question is, liberalism a revolution can have only one answer. Since it seeks a change of regime, the replacement of one regime by another, of different type altogether, it is, quite simply, revolutionary. And it is, in this area, above all others, we may note in the passing, that my resistors are more conscious of themselves as opponents of, as opponents of a revolution and as principled, yes, principled defenders of a tradition. So he's saying, look, this is the issue here, right? This is what they want. They are trying regime change in 1962. This is what they're doing. Regime change. Second liberal proposals do involve a common principle, one moreover, which, once you grasp it, clearly appears on the face of it revolutionary because it looks to overthrow an established social order. The principle in question is the egalitarian principle, not the equality principle of the Declaration, of independence, which holds merely, holds merely that all men are created equal, that is, as I understand it, are created with an equal claim to be treated as persons, though by no means necessarily as equal persons, with an equal right to justice and an equal right to live under a government limited by law and constitutionally excluded from concern with certain major spheres of human endeavor. We call this equity now, but he's getting at this in 1962, and this is true, this is a social order. The egalitarian principle stands over against the equality principle, In relation like that of a caricature to a portrait or a parody to a poem. For it, men are not merely created equal, or indeed not created equal at all, but rather ought, that is, have a right to be made equal, that is, equalized, and equalized precisely by governmental action. Ought have a right to be so equalized by government that they end up Other than actually equal in political power and wealth and income and education and living conditions, no one shall ever be able to say that government has spared any effort that might conceivably have made them equal. The equality of the Declaration is the equality to which, say, Abraham Lincoln was born, an equality that conferred upon him merely an equal right to compete with his fellow men in the race, as we run it here in America for whatever prize he be and his equality chose to go after. Not so the egalitarianism of the liberals. It must pick Lincoln up at dawn in a yellow school bus with flashing lights of saving him shoe leather, whisk him off to a remote consolidated school, financed in all probability by inflationary bonds, feed him a free lunch, educate him for democracy, protect him from so-called concentrations of social and economic power, eke out his income by soaking the rich, doctor him, hospitalize him, and finally social work him, if, as he presumably will now, he turns out into a juvenile delinquent. So think about everything you just said there in nineteen sixty two. This is all this is what their program is. And I've seen, you know equality is not equality is actually structurally bad. It's equity or egalitarianism, as Kendall calls it, that we're actually searching for. Can't have just equality. That's gonna get people left behind. We've got to make sure everybody has everything, all the same. Educate him for democracy, I love that. Uh, protect him from so called concentration of the social and economic power. What's that? That's critical race theory. That's structural racism. That's exactly what they're talking about in 1962. Equality, by offering the rewards of self-reliance, encourages them to be, above all, self-reliant. Egalitarianism encourages them to learn to play the angles. Revolutionary, yes, indeed. And in a threefold sense, revolutionary, because give the liberals their way, and the American social order will not bear even a cousinly resemblance to that which is traditional among us. Revolutionary, because the revolution must go on and on forever, since if you're in the business of making people equal, there is and can be no stopping place. Revolutionary, finally, because the job cannot be done by a government of limited powers anymore, to use James Vernon's phrase, that you can use an automobile automobile to dig potatoes. Third, it is in general true that my resistors make no great showing to date on the level of articulate grand principle. The noises they do make seldom to echo a vital and combat-ready conservative philosophy capable of matching the militant moralism of the liberals. For the most part, they do not. Indeed, the Senator Burr's, the Senator Bridges' etc. seem even to be trying to explain themselves. In a sense, therefore, they invite the allegation that their motives are sordid and selfish. But it would be rash to conclude from this that they are not men of principle at all and foolhardy to conclude from it that no respectable case can be made out in political and moral philosophy, for what they do, such a case is, I should say, rather ready to hand, ready to hand for them the moment they need it. And the great documents that lie at the root of the American political tradition—the Declaration of Independence, the deliberations of the Philadelphia Convention, the Constitution itself, the Bill of Rights, and above all, the Federalist. So here's or Kendall says, Kendall says, well, the Federalist is the key to it all. We need to read the Federalist because that's where we get to it now. This is why I did the originalist papers, because I agree in substance with what he's saying here and the Declaration in the principle of self-determination and self-government. That's where I agree with the Declaration, not all this other stuff that goes with it, that the the right has simply adopted. The Philadelphia Convention is fine. I wrote the Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution, and I use that. I also use the ratification debates. That's the most important part, the ratification debates. For my resistors do not act otherwise than they would if they had made the Federalist their political Bible and lived with it, steeped themselves in it, modeled themselves upon it, as Lobos appeared to do with, with Mills' essay. And the principles of the Federalists, make no mistake about it, are high principles. Wrong principles, perhaps. Wrong principles, certainly, if liberal principles are right principles. But principles projected on a very high level of moral aspiration and discursive circumspection. I would say the most important thing is what I'm going to give you. Not, well, if you take my Originalist Papers classes, but what you get with McClanahan Academy in the Originalist Papers series, and I'm going to have a book, The Originalist Papers, that would be more important than The Federalist, because you get the other parts to it, and that's so important. The case is ready to be made and is needed. Ah, the reader may well ask, but when is this going to be? And I can only answer. If and when the conservative movement now shaping up in the United States becomes sufficiently conscious of itself to require an overall doctrine and overall strategy. Ha, the reader may ask further, when and how would that come about? And I can only answer. When the pools of conservative resistance I have described above have become fully aware of one another, when they have become ready instead of going it alone to make common cause, and when they will have made it their business to establish back and forth among themselves the channels of communication without which large-scale warfare is impossible. Or again, when the conservative eggheads, as we know them in National Review and Modern Age, have learned, which they have not yet done, that they are that also are not much shakes when it comes to philosophy to make conscious common calls with the resistors in Congress. That moment, to be sure, is not yet. But things have moved very rapidly in the direction indicated during the past ten years, and there is reason to believe that they will move still more rapidly in the years just ahead. If they do, well, American politics are going to get mighty exciting. Now, this is again what Anton is saying. We 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 need unity in these things. Well, I agree. If the unity is going to be not on the left's playing field, we need to become conservative in that we have our own vision and that our own vision cannot be the leftist vision modified to fit our needs. We can't champion Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Martin Luther King, and Frederick Douglass. We can't champion them because they're leftists, all of them. We really can't even champion Abraham, champion Abraham Lincoln because he was, as Kendall points out, on the left in 1860. You cannot champion leftists and seem to think that you're going to have some type of viable conservative movement. The core of it all, this is why Think Locally, Act Locally is my theme, is federalism, self-determination, self-government, and liberty. That is the core to American conservatism. Now, we can deal with all these other things in the States or what we want to do, but certainly that's the core of it. If that was what we really believed in, Nancy Pelosi would have no power. Joe Biden, Kamala Harris would have no power. And They would have no power because federalism and the original understanding of the Constitution would limit their power to a point where they could only deal with certain things and it wouldn't be all this stuff we're talking about in modern national, quote-unquote, political discourse. All right, right, I'll when I respond back to Anton myself, I'll go through that in fairly uh, substantial detail, but until then... We're going to talk about Gottfried on, on Wednesday. So, this is an opening salvo on what I'm going to talk about this week with conservatism. I'll see you next time on the Brian McLean Show. See you then.